raising the prop game today. We're talking about glory, so um, you need a shiny ladder of glory, not least when you're wearing your shoes of glory. So bright, shining like the sun. Hope you enjoy those. Do you have a secret dream of glory? I'm talking about when you're you know, like seriously winning at something, and then you get to enjoy the adulation and the attention that would follow. What would it be? What's your secret dream of glory? Writing the, the next bestseller? Headlining at Glastonbury? Winning a Nobel Prize? What about um, winning the Bake Off? You know, in, in a really like sort of natural, humble way, in such a way that you, like, overnight you become this national treasure, and <laughs> maybe you even end up marrying into royalty in this scenario. I don't know. Welcome to my overactive imagination. For me, do you know what's at the top of my ladder? My, my personal dream of glory is definitely playing in a football match that's in a stadium full of people. And it's a home match. I'm on the home team. Maybe like Wembley, you know, 100,000 people. And I slip through and I score this just fantastic, like, self-made uh, creative goal into the top corner. And the, the place goes wild. And that is me right up here. That is my, that is my dream of, of glory. What is your personal flavor of glory? What sort of glory does your heart aspire to? In ancient Hebrew, the word for glory is kabod, and it has to do with weight, something that is weighty, something of substance, something that really matters. What do you think really matters in this life? What is truly captivating, what is truly amazing, what ranks as glorious in your head. The wise old author of this gospel that we've just read from is absolutely concerned with this question, what is glorious? And his answer fully intends to mess with our heads and all our systems of ranking and promotion. Um, so we are, we are in, for, in for that tonight. I've got a friend, uh, an older friend, who used to work for one of these like ultra-creative branding agencies in London, and he um, tells the story of, of when him and his team, they're called in to this company called Microtel Communications. Uh, this is back in the early 1990s, and they do their thing with the company and hang out, and then it all culminates, as so much of life does, culminates to a PowerPoint presentation. And, and he's there in the boardroom, and they, they, they basically make their pitch to, to Microtel Communications. What we think is you should rebrand like this. And they press the button, up pops the slide, and this one influential member of the, of the board just laughs out loud and slaps his fist down on the table and says, over my dead body. Because <laughs> it was absolutely ridiculous. It was like beyond anything, um, any sort of categories that existed in that kind of industry at the time. What they proposed was that Microtel Communications should rebrand as Orange. And of course, the rest is history. Orange mobile phones, Orange Wednesdays, two-for-one deals. You remember it touching your life, this little moment in a boardroom that spiraled out. Um, fast becoming ancient history, of course, because orange has since become EE. It seems like in the consumer tech industry, you need to 
kind of a thorough rebrand every, every few years just to demonstrate that you're on the cutting edge of, of whatever it is. Facebook's become meta, did you know? Just catching up. The Jesus follower movement has had the same branding for quite some time now. It's the cross. And when you think about it, having this, this brutal execution instrument as, as our central emblem, our logo, if you will, is actually far more shocking and subversive, even than calling your mobile phone company Orange back in the early 90s. My branding design guru friend, he was telling me about how the first thing that him and, and the team would do is just go into a particular organization and they'd spend a lot of time just immersing themselves in the place, in the people, in the processes and the products, all the while just trying to understand what is at the essence of this, this organization. They did this before anything else because the last thing that they wanted to do was to produce just some shallow marketing veneer that looked good but didn't ring true. I don't know how they got to Orange, actually, from Microsoft, but anyway. Because he said that good branding was all about fast, effective communication of what lies at the very heart of the organization. And when you have the cross as your central emblem, when this is what lies at the very heart of your organization, the heart of your movement, then you get the sense that there's something startlingly different going on here, something that cuts through all of our normal imagination, all of our normal expectations of what is glorious. And this is what John's Gospel is inviting us to see, to rework our imaginations, to rework some of the instincts of our hearts that we might come to see, come to recognize the, the beautiful truth of God's far surpassing glory. So let's get into it. John chapter 12, in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you'd read through the preceding 11 chapters, three times you'd have come across the, the sentence that the, the hour has not yet come. And then you get to chapter 12, finally, the hour has come. Now it is time. It's just after, just earlier in the chapter, Jesus says, walked into Jerusalem, the Palm Sunday donkey moment, and he's come in towards this, this confrontation, this sort of decisive climax as to everything that's been going on, this, this confrontation with the ruling powers of the day. Now his hour has come. Now is the time. Time for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. Alrighty then, it's glory time. If you have read your Hebrew scriptures up to this point, you will know that Jesus repeatedly calling himself the Son of Man is not him kind of saying, I'm just a humble man, don't think much, too much of me. Quite the opposite, in fact. Jesus is quoting directly from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Feel free to flick back to it if you want to see for yourself. Where the Son of Man is the one coming on the clouds whose dominion and glory and kingship reaches over all people and is everlasting, never to be destroyed. Come on. So for the Son of Man to be glorified, all his followers must have been like, yes, 
this is it, awesome. Now, at last, we're going to get, get to see what the, the strong arm at the top of the highest ladder really looks like, overthrowing the, the kind of... Um, I was going to go up the ladder at this point, not too late. <laughs> at last, we're going to see what the strong arm at the top of the tower looks like, overthrowing the uh, local uh, leaders and, and the corrupt and colluded leadership of the day, and then leading the revolution to throw off the Roman occupation and show the whole world who is boss. That's what they must have been thinking. But then in the very next sentence, Jesus says, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. And he starts talking about his own death. Throughout the scriptures, God's glory has appeared as, as, as dark clouds, as pillars of fire, unapproachable light. But then in this climactic moment of clarity, as the God of it all comes close in Jesus Christ, it seems that the epitome of his glory is this ugly death, this horrific apparent defeat. How could this be? As the cold logic of might is right, of the Roman army is nailed through his wrists. The claim here is that in this moment, is that the true glory of God is on display. And it's the glory of love, a majestic humility, a radical commitment, a self-sacrificing generosity, a spectacular movement of forgiveness, a deeper sort of power. This is the radiance of God's glory, the glory of his goodness. And his glory is love. It's a love that is, is given for you, it's given for me. And this is the beauty that we're invited to see. That his dominion, this everlasting dominion of the Son of Man, is not one of domination. That he comes with this, this invitation, this force of meekness, this, this power of gentleness and love that's, that's powerful enough to unlock even a human heart. The problem is, of course, that our hearts have been quite effectively captivated and captured by some other ideas, some other shiny ideas about what is weighty, about what really matters, about what is glorious. I'm talking about our big, shiny glory ladders that so easily captivate our imaginations. I don't know what you were thinking about right at the beginning. And they go along. There's some deep subconscious stories that accompany these shiny ladders of glory. Let me explain. I'm talking about the guy who was, um, described himself to me as officially addicted to his stock trading app on his phone. Um, he's got one of these things where you can you know, quickly, um, immediately trade in stocks and shares. And, uh, and he's just like multi checking it all day long. What's he looking for? For the little graph on it to be going that way, left, right, and up is where, is where he needs it to go. Did he make more money? Is he winning this shiny ladder of more, of growth, of accumulation, which all serves a deep subconscious story that the power of money, the point of money, 
is, is to be getting more money. That's the, the kind of undercurrent narrative that's accompanying this, this um, ladder of more and accumulation and growth. Or what about the person who's always on the old Instagrams, checking how their latest post is performing with this unquenchable thirst for, for more likes and more approval and more followers. It's a shiny ladder of some weird kind of fame. And the deep kind of subconscious story, narrative line that, that accompanies that pattern of behavior is that somehow life is more significant or more valuable the more that it's noticed by other people. I'm also talking about the country, this country, that over the years has named its aircraft carriers things like HMS Victorious, HMS Implacable, HMS Venerable, HMS Triumph, HMS Glory. And these names are laying down this deep subconscious story that military might is what is glorious. And I'm talking about myself here and all of the subconscious stories and instincts that are written deep into my heart and play out every day. And I'll give you one example. A few years back, I signed up for one of these Tough Mudder um, events. Anyone done a Tough Mudder? A few hands going up. For the uninitiated, it's where wise people who've put up their hands pay a good amount of money to run through the countryside, and every half mile or so are faced with obstacles which leave them covered in mud, or walking through ice baths, or even electrocuted. I'm sure you'll agree it's a really high point of 21st century culture. <laughs> so what happens when you go to a Tough Mudder, at the, at the, well, the one I went to, you, you're there with your little team, and to get to the starting pen, there was this six-foot wall to scale over, which was a bit much for some people. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is, we haven't even got to the start line here. You've got to get over this obstacle. Maybe it's sort of like weeded out people who really shouldn't carry on with this, this event. Anyway, once you're into the starting pen, there's some sort of super pumped cheerleader man guy on the, the over, overly loud PA system saying, come on, are you ready for this? And then there's this pledge that you have to take where you have to kind of promise back to him that you agree that this is not a race, and it's, um, the, the key part of the pledge is, we will leave no one behind. So I took this pledge with the best of them, and then off we ran as our team. It was fascinating to observe the different attitude I had. Some of these obstacles you can only get over as a team, and so you need people who got up before you to pull you up. Fascinating to observe the different relationship I had with people who were on top of the obstacle ahead of me that I needed to, to pull myself up, and the people behind me that I should really, um, you know, wait for. And, but I was in full race mode. I was in game mode. I wanted to win. And the big problem came when our team, um, it, by about the second kilometer, it became apparent that one of our team was really flagging behind. Yeah, every obstacle, we have to wait for um, a couple of minutes for this guy to, to catch up. And now, I was racing with my younger brother, seven years younger than me, and his friends. So I was, by, by a measure, the sort of the elder of, of our team and the, the, most, the most mature one. I was ordained within the Church of England, no less. <laughs> and to my shame, 
I have to confess to you that I was the one running between, alongside different other members of our team, saying, we've just, we've just, got, to, we've just got to leave him. <laughs> this is ridiculous. We can't, we can't you know. Um, thankfully, they all refused. And we've, I'm pleased to say we all crossed the line together at the end on pledge. But it gave this window on a delusional mindset that we all have to battle with, where we think life is about winning, about getting up the ladder, that we're somehow better off at getting ahead, leaving other people behind. C.S. Lewis, our very own C.S. Lewis, said that seconds to the bread and the wine at communion, but the holiest object that's presented to our senses is our neighbor. So who do we think we are with all these attempts to, to get ahead? Jesus does not define glory like we do with all our, our shiny ladders of winning. The victory and the glory of God, as we've seen, is at the cross. This is not some display of overpowering physical strength, but it's a potent display of radical love and forgiveness. As Jesus takes into himself all of the deathly consequences of sin and death and is raised to life again because evil has been defeated here. Love, it turns out, is stronger than death. My favorite song right now is called Citizens by a chap called John Guerra. Check it out, it's got an absolutely devastating last line. It says, love has a million disguises. Winning is simply not one. His glory is his love, and love does not look like winning. The only other thing that I want to say tonight is that Jesus actually calls us to follow him in this way of the cross, this way of love. Verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Worth saying that Jesus' high contrast vocabulary here of love and hate, it doesn't wonderfully translate into today's English um, to our ears. The point is definitely not to celebrate or somehow encourage chronic low self-esteem. The point is to contrast those who are so attached to their standing on the ladders, their position, their wealth, their power, their rank, to contrast them with, with those who are willing to release their hold on all of that and pray some big prayers of surrender. If you ever have the privilege of going to a uh, Roman Catholic ordination service, there's a very moving part in the proceedings where those getting ordained, um, as well as saying their, their big vows, will, will lie face down at the front of the church. It's completely, it's like the complete opposite of the, of the ladder approach to life. In, and it's symbolizing a death to their life in this world. I'm told that in some monastic orders, a similar thing happens um, when someone's becoming a monk or a nun and they're lying face down on the very burial cloth that will be used to shroud their body Upon, upon death, and, and they'll be buried in it within this community that they are 
surrendering their life within. Here's the thing, we're not all called to be monks, but the same sort of symbolism, symbolism of death to the old self-serving ways, death to the, the ladder climbing, death to the getting ahead ways of living, is there for each one of us in our baptism. In baptism, it's kind of like this, this drowning, drowning to all of that. There's old instincts, there's old habits, there's old values, systems, drowning to all of that, and being raised into this, this new opportunity for a life that's according to this different rhythm of generous, costly love. And the really wonderful news, as we pray those big prayers of surrender, what happens to us is that we fall straight into joy, into the stuff of eternal life that, that Jesus' death has opened up this path for us to enjoy. When Jesus surrendered his life on the cross, he suffered the full agony and alienation of sin and death in himself. But because of this, when we follow him, when we let go of some of our other securities and treasures and attempts at self-made glory, we fall straight into communion. There's tons of verses in the Bible that speak of this, this sharing in Christ's sufferings, this rejoicing, this, this coming to know him, know him in the fellowship of his sufferings in Philippians. I don't pretend to know a great deal about this. The people who are instructive to us are the martyrs, and I think also the long-term carers, I put in that bracket as well. Think of the, the joy of Stephen, the first martyr we read about in, in the book of Acts. Think about the accounts of the settled peace of Bonhoeffer in Germany in the last century as he was led to his death. I think about the, the irrepressible joy and faith and, um, and prayers of a friend of mine, Joy, as she cared over eight years the, the slow, painful, sorrowful decline of her spouse as she nursed his failing body, failing mind. And, she, and that, that, was her, that was her life for all those years. Our surrender is a moment of communion. Band are already here. Fantastic. Um, Lent invites us to think about these things, to get in touch with our mortality, the brevity of this life, the, the futility of our ladders, all our little glories, to surrender all of those projects that we have about trying to get ahead and have our hearts redirected to what is true, to be captivated afresh. True glory is love. Love has a million disguises, but winning is simply not one. Should we stand?